Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 12. I preached Hebrews 12, 12 through 14 last week, and really 12, 12 through 17 is one section that hangs together, and I split the sermon, and so we're going to take the second half focused on verses 15 through 17 this morning, but I'll just read that whole section together. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of the Lord. Let's give thanks as we receive it together. Father, we give thanks for your word, the word of the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, to his people that's been superintended by the Holy Spirit for us. We pray that we would receive your word with joy, that we would repent where we need to repent, that we would rejoice where we ought to rejoice that we would be thankful that Christ not only justifies us, but sanctifies us and carries us all the way to glory. That he does that through the means that he's appointed in his church. We pray that we would receive that word well. That you would help our minds to understand your word and to become more and more like your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week I said that we're running the race together. We're running the race of the Christian faith together. We, as we run this long race, want to endure. And if we're going to endure, we have to help one another along. That we are to help one another on the straight path in verses 12 and 13. To help one another pursue peace with everyone and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Verse 14. To keep one another hating sin and looking to Christ. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. That's what we're doing together. And my concern for us in our particular cultural moment is that we are a people who tend to stress rugged individualism. Now, I don't want you to hear me say that individualism is bad. There are many good things about individualism. There's much that's good and right about the notion of individual responsibility. However, every good idea has its extremes that push us towards sin and idolatry. Our notion of individualism has often gone to sinful extremes in a few ways that I want to press on just as we begin. First, we don't properly appreciate our need for community. We're created as social beings. Everything God creates, it was good, it was good, it is good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Then you get to Genesis 2 and the first time you hear not good, is not good that man should be alone. We're created as social beings. We need one another, and we need actual human contact with one another. That's a particular challenge now in the midst of our, if you will, nationwide social isolation project. It's no surprise that in the midst of massive social isolation, we are seeing an explosion in domestic violence, murder, riots, suicidal ideation, political unrest. No surprise. 
I know the Christian line today is that if you love people, then you socially isolate so that you don't get other people sick. And look, there can be a place for that. But folks, we are not just bodies. Physical health is not the ultimate good. What does it profit a man if he avoids a virus and forfeits his soul? Second problem of individualism I see is we often eschew standards of behavior or conduct, external standards of behavior or conduct. We just hate them. To be an individual has become to be a law unto ourselves. There's no external standard that can restrain me. I don't need to conform to an external law. Look, it just shows up here. Manners are for the birds. Why should I be mannerly? Well, how about because other people matter more than you? Oh, those are social conventions that are just repressing my individual expression of who I really am. That's the kind of garbage we say because the self has become the center of all things. You're just oppressing the true me, the real self, and it's inauthentic to conform, and the greatest of all possible goods is apparently authenticity. Look, some of your junk just needs to be kept in the closet. You can tell a few people about it and confess it and deal with it, but it isn't doing everybody good for you just to drag it all out there in public. It's okay to conform. In other words, me, myself, and I are all that matter. And if you can't accept that, then you're unloving. The self has become utterly central. Third problem I see is that we often reject institutions. You're seeing where I'm building toward. We isolate, we undermine community, make ourselves the center of what is the law, and we reject any institutions. What authority does the church have over me? I have a relationship with Jesus. I don't need any religion. Never mind that in Luke, it's constantly emphasized that Jesus was religious. That James talks about pure and undefiled religion. I certainly don't need an institution called the church that somehow has some authority over my life. Even if I do join a church, interesting word, I join a church, like a country club or something. If I join, it's a commitment I'm making for my own personal ends. Once that church ceases to be useful, I'll just join another. And by useful, I don't mean once that church ceases to hold a moral standard for its leaders, that's legitimate, or sound doctrine, also legitimate. In other words, I'm not saying if a church starts teaching false doctrine or a church has leaders who are immoral and the church refuses to deal with it, then you leave. Those are good reasons to leave. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the church just isn't so useful to me anymore. I have gifts that aren't really being expressed the way they need to. People irritate me there. Leaders make decisions I don't like. Once those people become difficult, I'll find folks who are easier for me because it's about me. If those leaders make decisions I don't like, I'm not talking about decisions like immoral decisions, just decisions I don't like. I don't think the carpet should be that color then I'll reject that nonsense and I'll do what I believe is best for me and my relationship with God. With sovereign grace, this ought not to be the case. The Lord Jesus died for his church. He is building his church. Matthew 16, I will build my church. You want to know what Christ's mission is? To build his church. Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He saved you into his body, the church of which he is the head, and these are your people. This is your family eternally. If you can't get along with them now, you've got eternity with them coming. 
might as well start making peace right now. I know you're like, well, then I'll be made perfectly holy and peace will be easier. True. True. Or maybe you're more concerned, then they'll be made perfectly holy and peace will be easier. The Father elected the church. The Lord Jesus bought the church with his blood. The Holy Spirit indwells the church. And in that sense, you don't join a church, you submit to it. We're running this race together, and we need each other to finish the race. I know you guys have seen the outcome of what it looks like when you don't finish the race as we keep reading, especially recently, of the moral failures of well-known church leaders. And if you dig down into the stories of those massive moral failures, some of which are incredibly disturbing to read, you find a common theme. What the common theme is? They have lots of folks magnifying and facilitating their giftedness, and few folks caring for their souls. You rarely hear any of those stories a mention of a local church who's providing oversight to their lives. Rarely hear about that. I'm a man under authority. The elders here are men under authority. We need people to keep us in check too. Both the members and the elders keep one another in check. We need that. I've, sometimes I'm down at Radius and the students will ask me, would you ever consider a call to go and do this? And I tell them, well, if my elders gave me permission to do that. Gave you permission? Yeah, I'm a man under authority. My life belongs to this church until the elders tell me they would prefer it not belong to this church anymore. And they put parameters around me, which are good. Like, Chad, you will not travel alone anywhere. By the way, that's for all of us. You're not going to meet and counsel with women by yourself, ever. There's just a series of rules that we all agree to to hold one another accountable. The New Testament is chock full of one another's precisely because we need one another. We shouldn't be arrogant enough to think we're going to be good on our own. We're going to see clearly in our text that we're actually commanded to watch out for one another. Listen, every time you see some major voice in evangelicalism fall into moral failure, you ought to stop and consider, man, every time I heard that man preach, I thought, I don't know half as much about God as he does, maybe not even 10%, and look at where his life just went. Who am I to think that if I don't have believers around me, I don't have the church running with me, I won't end up there too. We'll see three specific problems in our text today that we're supposed to watch out for one another. So I'll say this, there's one general command, and then this, that'll be the first point, and then the second point will be three specific problems to watch out for in the body. So one general command of watching out for the body, and three specific problems we're to watch out for in the body. So as we look at Hebrews 12, 15 through 17, keep in mind that we're being commanded to help one another run the race of the Christian faith. That's really the first point I'm going to make, and that we're watching out for one another in three specific regards, and I'm going to make that as a second point. So let's look at the first at the general command. We are commanded to oversee one another, to oversee one another. Look at Hebrews 12, 15. See to it. See to it. I'm just going to stop there. See to it. We're all being commanded to see to it. This is a participle. Participles, in this case, this participle is serving a verb. What's the verb? The verb is the command to pursue. We are together in verse 14 to pursue peace with everyone and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Together we are pursuing that, and in our pursuit of that, one of the things we do or what we're being told to do in our pursuit of that is to see to it. What does that mean? It's kind of a weak way to translate this participle. Watch out might be another way to translate it. See to it just... 
see to it that you get that done. It doesn't sound very strong, does it? Watch out. Watch out for this. It's telling you about the main verb. You're to pursue peace with everyone and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, and you were to do so by watching out. Actually, what's interesting about this particular participle is a participial form of the word from which we get overseer or bishop. This word episkopos. The same participle for oversight is used in 1 Peter chapter 5. Look there, keep your hand in Hebrews 12 and look at 1 Peter chapter 5. This participle is the same form used in the exact same way in 1 Peter chapter 5. I'll point it out to you. So I exhort the elders among you, this is an exhortation to the presbyteros, the presbyters. That's where you get the word Presbyterian from. Presbyterian just means elder rule. The elders who are ruling among you. The elders who are overseeing the church. The elders who are pastoring the church. So I exhort the elders among you. So here's Peter speaking to the leaders of the church. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Remember, he was there when Christ suffered. He saw it with his own eyes. As well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed Now notice what he tells the elders. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Pastor them. Shepherd them. Notice the next phrase. Exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Notice that though. The elders are to shepherd the flock, exercising oversight. To exercise oversight is to watch out for someone. To look after them. Turn over to Acts chapter 20. Keep your hand in Hebrews 12 and turn over to Acts chapter 20. Let's see Paul command the elders in Ephesus. Look at verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So he's going to speak to the elders in the church of Ephesus. Now what does he say to the elders? When they came to him, he said to them, verse 18, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Now notice the life of Paul as he's telling the elders how he served among them as an example to them. I gave my whole life to you. And I was watching out for you. I was teaching you in public and from house to house. I was caring for you, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now he's going to go on and command them. He also goes on and says, verse 26, look, therefore I testify to this day that I'm innocent of the blood of you all. He's using the terms from Ezekiel here. If the watchman on the wall doesn't watch out for the people, then he's guilty of their blood if they get attacked and he hasn't warned them. And he was using that language saying, I'm not guilty of your blood because I've warned you. I'm innocent of the blood of all of you. I've done my job. For I did not, now how has he defined that? Verse 27, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I taught you everything in the word of God, unashamedly, unreservedly. I didn't pull my punches. I made sure that God's word was spoken to you with abundant clarity. Now look what he goes on to say, verse 28. Pay careful attention. Here's the command of the elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you what? Overseers, guardians, those who watch out for others to care for the church of God which he has obtained with his own blood. 
I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. See, the elders have the baton being passed to them, and they're to exercise oversight. They're to watch out for the flock. They're to day and night be caring for them, teaching them the word, opening up God's word to them, warning them, rebuking them, encouraging them, showing God's promises to them, defending and protecting them from false teachers, from lies. They're to exercise oversight. That's why we're told in Titus 1.9 that the elder must be able to teach sound doctrine and refute those who contradict, watching out for the flock. In 1 Timothy 3, being an overseer or providing oversight is the office and responsibility of the pastor and elder. Now, there's a distinction made in 1 Timothy 5.17 between the full-time guys, those who teach all the time, and the guys who are not being paid to do that. There's a clear distinction being made there, but the point is we collectively as elders have the responsibility of oversight, of watching out. Now, why do I take all this time to do that? Because Hebrews 12, go back there, Hebrews 12, and look at verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that see to it, that command, watch out, provide oversight, is a command being given to you. In other words, you're being told to do the same thing elders are being told to do. Watch out for each other. Provide oversight to each other. Guard each other. You're being told to do that. This is a command given to the whole church. Now, there is a sense in which the church, the race, if you will, is being run by the church together under the oversight of the whole body. It's also being particularly overseen by the elders. But let's distinguish here. We are not saying that the body of Christ doesn't have oversight over one another. In fact, we're saying the body of Christ does have oversight over one another. And that elders have a particular responsibility of oversight over one another. It's not just, well, the burden's all on you, Chad. Good luck with that. I know these folks, it ain't going to be easy. We're in this together. I want to press this point in a manner that's going to make you uncomfortable, which you know me well enough to know doesn't really bother me to do. <laughs> but I have two growing concerns about our current moment. First, some Christians have bought the lie that bodily health is the main concern that they ought to have for themselves and for others. We've lived in a very healthy, prosperous nation for a long time. And we've bought into the fact that that's normative and that ought to be our highest goal. They've lost sight of the fact that running the race to heaven is what we must be most concerned with. Look, as a pastor, I don't want to see anybody get sick or die. The worst thing I do and the best thing I do is sit with people at the end of their life. I think you'll understand why I say it's both the worst and the best. It's always a tragedy, though. Death is our enemy, not our friend. It may be gain to see Christ, but death remains an enemy. But as a pastor, I am far more concerned about apostasy than I am about death. I never want to see someone give up the race and be damned to hell. And that ought to be a far greater concern to me and to you than physical health. Listen, if physical health were the major concern for Christians, we would not be following a crucified Lord. We would not be carrying around in our bodies the death of Jesus. We would not be sending missionaries to dangerous places, nor would we be celebrating martyrs. Second, in the isolation of our current moment, it's nearly impossible for pastors to provide oversight 
or for other members to provide oversight for one another. As pastors, I can tell you, we don't even know how to deal with it. We're just trying to figure it out as we go along. How are the elders in the church to deal with this? The answer I can tell you is we don't know. But we do know we're commanded to oversee one another. And we do know that we need to be physically present with one another for that to happen. That's not an option. We cannot oversee people that we are never physically present with. So what are our concerns for one another to be? What are we to be overseeing together? That's the second thing I want to look at because I just got into some very strong language. Three areas to provide oversight or to watch out for. Notice the statements were given. Watch out, see to it, provide oversight, guard one another, so that, now there's three statements. They all start with no. There are three parallel statements here that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. They all start with the exact same Greek negation. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Second, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Third, that, verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. There's more here, but these are the three parallel statements. No one fails to obtain the grace of God. No root of bitterness springs up. No one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. And they seem to be parallel statements that are escalating in intensity, if you will. But let's consider each warning briefly. First warning, see to it, watch out, oversee that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. I think that New American Standard does a better job of translating this, particularly in the context of Hebrews 12. That no one fails to obtain the grace of God, I don't think is a particularly helpful translation. I think more helpfully be translated that no one comes short of the grace of God. You're in a race running after a finish, and the language is really, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That, in other words, they fail to get to the finish line. We're to see to it, to watch out for one another so no one comes up short in the race. That doesn't mean, I know it's going to come immediately. Can people lose their salvation? Does that mean people can lose their salvation? No, that's not what he's saying. If they never reached the finish line, then they never had it in the first place. Their race was a false start. True faith endures in the race to the end. The gift of grace that we call faith that's given to you by the Holy Spirit endures to the end. Keep your hand in Hebrews 12 and look at Hebrews 3. We're going to get a warning there, but notice the language that we're warned to endure. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day. How often are you supposed to exhort each other? Every day. Well, once a week seems like a lot, and if you're going to ask me to go to a midweek meeting too and do that again, that's twice a week, and you want to have a Sunday night prayer, like that's three times, that's pretty heavy-handed, don't you think? Every day. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. In other words, as long as we're in this present moment, what moment do I mean? The era in which Christ has not yet returned. Tomorrow is when Christ returns and comes as judge. Today, day of salvation. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, notice this, we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. True faith endures to the end. And so we're supposed to exhort one another all the way to the finish line. Help one another, encourage one another, rebuke one another, 
pick one another up when we need to and carry one another until we're at the finish line. Here's the thing. Someone can profess faith, be baptized, and join the membership of this body, but that doesn't mean that we know whether their faith is temporary faith or enduring faith. Here's what we know. We're supposed to watch out for them. We're supposed to exhort one another every day. We're supposed to encourage one another, not forsaking the gathering ourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. We want to help one another stay in the race to the end. So here's the next objection. Well, if true faith endures, then why do we need to help one another endure? Why help each other with that? If true faith will endure to the end, then why are we commanded to watch out lest we don't endure to the end? Yes, true faith endures to the end, but the Lord has also appointed the means to enduring in faith. He's appointed the means, and that means includes the body of Christ watching out for one another. When he gives you the gift of true faith, he also gives you the church to watch out for you and to keep you in the race to the end. He gives you warnings so that you see the necessity of attending to the means of grace he's given. Now, what are some ways you can do this well? What are some ways you can watch out for one another well? Well, on the Lord's Day, I would suggest you consider coming early and staying late so you have a chance to get to know folks, to care for them. You're not just coming for you. You are coming for you because you do want to receive the grace of God in Christ, but you're not merely coming for you. You're also gathering for the sake of your brothers and sisters in Christ. So you come early. Make sure that people you know are here. Check on them if they're constantly not here. Talk with them. See how they're doing. Stay late. Same thing. Perhaps the primary way this mutual oversight occurs in our church is through our grace groups. I'm not requiring you to be in grace groups as members. We don't require that. But the reason we have them is so that you all can get to know other members of the body and watch out for each other. But we don't want you to see grace groups as like a weekly activity. So you had your weekly activity on Sunday morning. You, you kind of checked that box. And then you had your weekly activity on Wednesday night. Your grace group and you sort of checked that box. And you've participated and good to go. We want you to actually see it as this is not about just Bible study. This is about knowing the brothers and sisters in Christ whom God has commanded me to provide oversight to, to watch out for. I want you to hear this. You are not just commanded to be in the word of God together. You're commanded as a member of this church to provide oversight for other members of this church. So the reason we gather is so we can actually know each other and fulfill those commands. The grace group is a group of people in this body whom you're watching out for. So you get to know them, you pray for them, you love them, you pursue them, you care for them. In April, we're going to be starting back our Sunday evening service. Well, Sunday afternoon. It'll be at 4 o'clock because you all don't want to be here once it gets dark in that parking lot. So it'll be at 4 o'clock. It's going to start again in April. But we come to hear the word together and for extended time of prayer together because to come and pray for the body is one way you watch out for one another corporately by praying for each other. I know it sounds like a lot to ask folks to come three times a week to pursue each other, whatever, but... Most of church history, the members gathered every single day. We're in a unique time where it's like, well, you know, once in a while, maybe three times a month. I mean, we're the oddballs historically, and I got to ask the question, is the church any healthier as a result of our social isolation? I'm not talking about the social isolation of COVID. I'm talking about the social isolation of Christianity that says I check a box on Sunday morning and then me and my family are good. We don't need to watch out for anybody else. We need to find opportunity to be together now, I want to give a caveat here. I don't mean you need to be in each other's grills every day, like some kind of spiritual nags. That's not what I'm talking about. 
Most good oversight is not about constantly pointing out what's wrong with people. In fact, it's rarely that. That comes up. But good oversight means building friendships with people, loving people, caring for people, being patient with one another, encouraging one another, and when a rebuke is needed, being willing to do that too. We need to be together and care for one another like friends. We need to care about whether others finish the race. For the one who does not finish the race with Christ's church comes up short of the grace of God. We're to watch out that no one comes short of the grace of God. You hear the responsibility given to you as a member of Christ's church? Not just elders. Provide oversight for the other members of your body so that no one comes up short of the grace of God. Second, look at what it says, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. We're to watch out to oversee one another that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. I think when we hear this language, we incorrectly tend to think that the root of bitterness is something that springs up in our own hearts when we're angry. So like that person ticked me off and they ticked me off repeatedly enough that now I'm starting to become bitter and a root of bitterness is springing up in my heart. You guys tend to read this text that way. That's actually not what he's saying. That's true, that does happen to you. You should cut out a root of bitterness springing up in your heart for sure. But that's not what this text is about. This text is maybe more helpfully translated this way. See to it that no bitter root springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. The bitter root is actually a false professor in Christ's church who becomes a troublemaker. That's the bitter root. This is a false professor in Christ's body who commits sin, who stirs up division, who gossips, who slanders, who lives in an ungodly manner, and defiles other members with their sin. How do I know that? Because this term bitter root actually comes from Deuteronomy 29. It's not just appearing magically here in Hebrews. It has a history. When Moses was meeting with the second generation of Israel who was to go into the land under Joshua, because if you remember the first generation had fallen into sin, they were not going to go into the promised land. But Moses meets with the second generation and says, essentially in Deuteronomy, which is the second telling of the law, Moses essentially says, here's our story. Here's where we messed up. Here's how God commanded us. Here's the covenant he made with us. Don't do what we did. <laughs> do this instead. And the covenant is renewed with this generation. And in the midst of that covenant renewal ceremony in Deuteronomy 29, here's what we hear. And I just want you to hear this. This last part of verse 18. Beware lest there be any among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. This bitter root, who are they? Verse 19, it's going to define it. The bitter root's a person. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, this is what he does, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This is the person who says, God forgives, I can do whatever I want. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man, and the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. It's pretty serious. Watch out that no bitter root springs up. Now, the bitter root may defile the church in three ways. He may cause doctrinal division in the church, teaching error. He may cause moral defilement of the church, living wickedly. Or he may cause relational strife in the church, gossiping, slandering, being disobedient to biblically constituted authority. Take your pick. But what do you do with the bitter root? You cut it out. You cut the bitter root out of the body. 
saying watch out for it because once the bitter root springs up, if it starts to grow and get full bloom, the body is in trouble. Many will be defiled. So you watch out as you start to see the bitter root come up and you cut it out. This is the person you excommunicate before they defile many. You're vigilant here. If you allow the bitter root to grow in the garden of the Lord, it will eventually poison many. And we as a body have to watch out for that. It's your responsibility and the elder's responsibility to watch out for that. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported. Now, notice Paul's writing 1 Corinthians because he's received a letter from the church at Corinth, and he's responding to some of their requests and things he's heard about them. You'll see him specifically start to respond to some of their questions in chapter 7. But in chapters 1 through 6, he's actually responding to some things he's heard about them. And he says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. So here's a man who is participating in relations with his dad's wife, his stepmom most likely. And what Paul's saying is, you're allowing that sexual morality to occur in your own body, and even the pagans are grossed out by that. You don't have to be a Christian to think, ooh, that's not good. That's what Paul's saying. And you are arrogant. How are they arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. What's he saying? Here's their arrogance. We're so gracious that we just welcome in the sinner like this. Look how gracious we're being. And Paul's saying, you're arrogant. You should mourn that that's in the body. Goes on, verse 6, look down there. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Look, this is the bitter root defiling many, a little leaven, leavening the whole lump. I was actually watching this pizza show. Do you guys watch the pizza show? Anybody watch it besides me? This guy travels various places and people make pizza and it's fascinating to me. He goes to this place in Italy and this guy has this gigantic, it's a big bowl of dough. And he's making the dough and he takes a box of leaven and he says, look, and he says, I'm gonna put some leaven in to leaven the lump. And it's, it's a huge container. And he takes out, and he's got just little tiny specks on the palm of his hand of leaven. The guy says, that it? He goes, that's all it takes to leaven the whole thing. Little tiny specks and throws in. I thought, wow, like, this is exactly what Paul's talking about. You know, that was just yesterday from an Italian baker. This is what exactly what Paul's talking about. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It defiles many. So you have to get it out. Look what he goes on to say in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. If you didn't associate with sinners in the world, you'd have to live on a different planet because that's all that's around you. So what does he say? What I'm, now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now, he's not saying, like, wives, if your husband got excommunicated, you should never have a meal with your husband again. He's not saying that. What he's talking about is the eating with such a one is the giving the public the impression that this one is a member of the body in good standing, that they're part of the church. You're to not associate as a church. You're to make it clear this one is not one of us. This is a matter of church discipline. You must remove the unholy leaven, lest it leaven the whole lump. This isn't about shunning where you just treat the person poorly and ignore them and never talk to them. This is about making sure that it's clear that while you may love this unbeliever 
and care for this unbeliever and be friends with the unbeliever, this unbeliever is not part of the body. This leads to the last thing that we need to watch out for in this race. Go back to Hebrews 12 and we'll look at that. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. What's meant here? No one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Well, sexual morality is a lust to gratify the desires of the flesh. Unholy, that word unholy, is also could be translated being profane or just translated unbelieving. Someone who's idolatrous, treating as common that which is holy. They're not really a believer. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy, i.e. unbelieving, caught up in idolatry, like Esau was. What does he mean? What did Esau do? I'm not going to go back to Genesis and read the story to you, but Esau is born of Isaac. So Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Before Isaac is a man named Abraham with whom God covenanted. God then passed that covenant to Isaac because God covenanted with Abraham and his offspring. That covenant then goes to Isaac, who's his offspring. And then Isaac has Jacob and Esau. And the covenant passes down to his offspring. And what does Esau do? He's the firstborn of these two twins. Therefore, he has birthrights to all the promises. And he sold his birthright for a single meal. He came home and he was hungry. And Jacob offered him food in exchange for his birthright. Esau treated his birthright, notice what's happening here, Esau treated his birthright, a holy gift of God, as not worth more than a pot of stew. So he made the trade. Remember what this means in biblical history. Esau is the son of Isaac. He knew that God had promised the land to the offspring of Abraham and Isaac. He was a son of Abraham and Isaac. He knew that God promised the Messiah would come from the seed of Abraham and Isaac. And that could be him. He knew that. He knew that God promised heaven and earth to Abraham's offspring. He knew that God promised to be God to the offspring of Abraham and to dwell among his people, yet he sold all that for a single meal. That's what he's getting at. In other words, what the author of Hebrews is telling us is Esau never believed any of it. He didn't believe the promises of God. He heard all the promises of God. He even received the sign and seal of the promises of God in circumcision, and yet he didn't believe any of them. He rejected the promises. He exchanged them for a single meal. Now look at verse 17. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, see, now he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance or no place to repent, though he sought it with tears. See, he rejected all of God's promises for a little lunch. And later he wept over what he lost. He wept over what he lost, but he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. So he had sorrow, but it was worldly sorrow. He never had godly sorrow that leads to repentance, which we hear about in 2 Corinthians 7.10. There's a worldly sorrow, often accompanied with lots of tears. But it's not a godly sorrow because it doesn't lead to repentance that bears fruit in keeping with repentance. It may say, I'm sorry and I'm repentant, but it never bears any fruit in keeping with repentance. His grief, his tears, never produced the repentance that bore the fruit of godliness. He was grieved, in other words, over consequences, not over his sin and unbelief. You know what that looks like if you have children, <laughs> when your children are grieved over the consequences for their sin, but not necessarily for their sin. And there are some parenting books that just 
tell you to keep on disciplining until they finally feel grief over their sin, that's nonsense. You can't make a child feel grief over their sin. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Adults are not too dissimilar from children. We like to think we are, but we just have our adult version of temper tantrums. We don't get our way, and we throw little fits. We lose something because of our sin, and we grieve over our loss. But rarely do we come like we ought to and say, man, the greatest loss here is the honor of God because of my sin. Friends, many professing Christians have failed to continue in the race because of their love of the flesh. That's what he's getting at in verse 16. Don't love the flesh. Sexual morality is included here because it's a particularly powerful intoxicant. It is not really the problem of Esau. Esau's problem is profanity, unholiness, unbelief. But sexual morality is wrapped up in it because it's a particularly powerful intoxicant. In a day of pervasive pornography, and when I say pervasive pornography, I include much of what's rated R in that category. How about this? Pretty much anything made by Netflix or Amazon. We need to watch out for one another. You used to have to be a real pervert to get access to pornography in our community. You had to be known for it because you had to go to some funky store to buy something or walk in. Now it just streams right onto your device. That's dangerous. You need to watch out for one another. In a day in which the sexual revolution is utterly triumphant, particularly the notion that others have no right to oppress your base desires, we have to watch out for one another. In a day in which our culture screams at us that the individual is ultimate, we must turn from that lie and care for one another. We're running the race of faith together. May God give us the grace to help one another finish well and so receive the unfading crown of glory. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful that you have been gracious to us in Christ, saved us in him, not anything we've done, but your gift to us, and that you have been gracious enough to give us the Spirit to unite us to Christ so that we receive the forgiveness of our sins, so that we receive his righteousness to our account so that we are being made by the Spirit more and more into His likeness with ever-increasing glory day by day. Father, we pray that You would help us to also remember the gift that it is to be saved into Christ's body, the church of which He is the head, so that we might care for one another, we might oversee one another, watch out for one another as we run the race of faith together. Give us grace so that we would reach the finish line together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.